everybody. Welcome to the MOH Podcast. I am Jim Patton, your host. Uh, for those of you that tune in normally, you probably say, boy, his voice sounds weird today. That's <laughs> And that's true, because um, here in East Texas, where we make these, it's spring, and the, the pollens are out, and I have hay fever. So try not to make fun of me. But I'm going to present you with a, a new a new tape. When I say a new tape, it's another one, a very early 70s tape from Winky Prattney. And um, in this one, he's going to uh, talk about, uh, kind of talk about the difference between a real and false Jesus. But really what happens is he, he kind of turns his attention towards the Jesus movement. Talks about some of the, the good things and then the bad things, the pluses and minuses of what happened there. And uh, of course, when he was making this thing, the, the Jesus movement was still going on. And uh, so it's kind of a good, we, uh, Dee and I met a guy about a week, week and a half ago, who didn't know what the Jesus movement was, and we had to explain it to him. And uh, this is a, another little history lesson for those of you who weren't around during the Jesus movement. And uh, so get ready for this. We're going we're gonna to play this, and then I'll come back at the end and, and tell you uh, some of the songs that he plays at the end. And by the way, uh, these songs are really hard to hear. Um, it's, it's a situation where the the songs that he was playing, the clips of songs he was playing, were playing over a PA system, and then the PA system was just getting picked up by the microphone. So it's not a great, it's not a great sound, but uh, it's all right. You, you'll still get the point. And uh, have Winky Prattney talk to you about the uh, Bar Jesus, the new Messiah. There's a man in the Bible whose name was Jesus, and he was not the Jesus who died on the cross for the sins of the world. You'll find his story in Acts 13, verse 6. Here is Paul and Silas being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, and they went off to Cyprus, an island which you still know about. When they were at this place, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. When they'd gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer. This is the name given to this man. A false prophet, a phony preacher, a person who came to, uh, he looked like he was a true prophet, but he wasn't, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Name was Bar-Jesus. Which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him, and he said, full of subtlety, you sneaky dude, is what he said, and all mischief, you child of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert or to twist the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a season." And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness. And he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Can you imagine that? Here is a power confrontation between two people. Paul and Silas arrived. He arrived at this place. And he says, he's preaching, and there's this guy here in charge of the country. He's very interested. And there's another guy whose name is Jesus. And he's the enemy of the Jesus that Paul and Silas are preaching. 
And he tries to turn this man away from faith in God and from faith in Christ. So what we have is a direct power confrontation. This guy is a sorcerer. He puts hexes on people, and he does freaky things like this. So you've got to see here this kind of a power confrontation, and Paul says, all right, you sneaky dude, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you're going to be blind. You're not going to see the sun for a season. Suddenly the sorcerer is used to casting hexes and doing all kinds of weird things to people. He can't see. His eyes are all open, and he can't see a thing. And this other guy says, wow, I'm a believer, you know. He never seen anything like that. Now, I've seen young people, and I believe this will happen as we move towards the last days of the world. I believe you'll see direct power confrontations. There are young people on the streets, and they don't look weird at all. They don't have long hair even. They don't wear freaky clothes. They just dress as straight as anybody you've ever seen. Cut their hair. Some of them almost shave it to crew cuts. And those young people, you may be out in the street, one of these guys will come up to you and he'll say, listen, I'm sold out to the devil and I'm full of his power and I can do this, this and that. And you have no power over me. I wonder what some people who've gone to church all their lives are going to do. When they walk in a society, people by people, who have sold their lives out to the devil. That's going to be a scary thing. But I want you to learn a lesson here that will be important. Not all people who are called Jesus are the Bible Jesus. You understand that? How many have ever been to Mexico? Now, if you go to Mexico, you probably meet a lot of Jesuses. And oh, there's, there's Jesus Gonzalez who lives down the road, and then there's Jesus so-and-so. There's a lot of people called Jesus in the world. So simply because somebody has the name of Jesus does not necessarily mean they're the Bible Jesus. And Acts 13, 6 tells us about this. Now if you look in Matthew chapter 24, we hear some scary words from the Lord Jesus. The real one, the one who died on the cross 2,000 years ago and arose again to take care of the sin problem, the selfishness problem in man. The Lord Jesus is with the 12 disciples in Matthew 24 and verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. And here's a word I want you to remember. It's the word deceive. The Lord thought this word is the most important word. He said it to the disciples. He said the very first sign I want you to be careful of as we move into the last days is the word deceive. Now the Lord gave a number of other prophecies of what would happen near the end of the world. He said that there would be nation rising against nation. You can see this in verse 7. Kingdom against kingdom, and we've sure had that. I think of a visitor from Mars, assuming there was anybody on Mars or some other planet came down on a little flying saucer, you know, and landed. And then he put out a spy beam to find out what Earth's major industry would be. Do you know what the answer would be? He went back and he said, listen, this is what most people on the Earth are engaged in. I think his answer would be war. Probably had less than 300 years peace in the last 2,000 years. Man has constantly been at war. 
But Jesus gave some other signs. He said there's going to be famine. Most of you know the problems we have in the world today. There is the frightening possibility that by the year 2000 and something, we're not going to have enough food to feed everybody. Over two-thirds of the world go to bed hungry. Famine, Jesus said. This, for the very first time in history, we've had a population explosion so fast that today, as you sit here, over half the world is under 25 years of age. That's significant. That doesn't mean that your tomorrow's generation, I get sick of uh, parents saying, well, we've got to take care of these kids, they're tomorrow's generation. I believe you're today's generation. Over half the world belongs to you. And that just has never happened before in history. Been more people born and alive today from the beginning of the century than there was all the way from that start of that century, all the way back to time, as far as we can remember, there's more people alive today and have been born in this century than have ever been before. And half the world is under 25. And then Jesus said there would be pestilences or strange forms of disease, if you like. You know this. When I was doing research, and my background is organic research chemistry, when I was doing research in chemistry, I uh, did a little bit of study on germ warfare. And, uh, you know, when they were making the atomic bomb, they took some very careful precautions, and they, they had one man killed in the whole original research in the atomic bomb. What happened is this guy had two pieces of, of uh, radioactive material, and if you put them together, they reached critical mass. And you know what he was doing? He had them on... The, on this laboratory bench, and he began to push them towards each other to see how close he could get before the reaction started. And uh, he slipped when he was pushing, and the things joined, and then a blue-white arc jumped between them, and it went into critical mass. Another few seconds, and he would have had an A-bomb happen right in his laboratory. So the poor guy had to grab the two pieces of critical mass and pull it apart with his bare hands, and was shot full of radiation. Within a few short weeks, he died. Now, that's they had a few other people get sick with radiation poisoning. That's when they made the A-bomb. But they have new forms of disease warfare now. You know, they, um, they have tried to stop this or ban it. They have things. One's called the botulinus toxin. Another one's called the psittacosis virus, which is one being developed from a certain form of parrot. So deadly. You could take a small drop, half a mil, put it in a water supply like New York City and wipe out the whole city. And this, in this uh, developing of this disease program, they had incredible precautions. People had to put on special suits, go through a bath of detergent, and then into an airlock, and then go through another shower thing, and then be radiated with infrared to kill all these disease germs, and finally work in the lab behind these closed screens with... Uh, you know, gloves and all this, and then come out through all this process, and hundreds of people got sick and infected. That's how deadly these new forms of disease are. So they've hope, hopefully banned these so that some of you may have seen uh, Hawaii Five-0, where that dude carried around those... Remember that? He carried his test tubes of stuff around, and he dropped one, and it began to go through the whole island. Well, scary things like that. That wasn't enough, Jesus said. In the last days, you'll find earthquakes in diverse places. Now, my wife and I know all about earthquakes now because we were in California when they had their last big shake. As a matter of fact, I'd preached the night before. 
pretty tough bunch of dudes I was preaching to, too. I remember saying something like, God's going to have to shake some of you guys up, you know. <laughs> Six o'clock in the morning, man, boom! I bet a lot of people got saved that morning. That was really something else. Jesus said, you'll find earthquakes in diverse places. This will be another sign of the end of the world. I have a study by the American Association Advancement of Scientific Research, and they have traced major earthquakes above 0.7 on the Richter scale through the centuries, the ones that have had greatest amount of damage. And it's very interesting to trace this because it goes along in almost a straight line for a number of centuries. When it comes to about the 16th or 17th century, it begins to peak up. When it hits the 18th, it goes like this. The 19th and in the 20th century, it just goes like this. There's more, and it's almost like the earth is saying, will you quit it to people? You know, I'm getting tired of all this stuff, see? That's scary. That's another sign. Jesus said, all these things are just the beginning of sorrows. You know, just to encourage you so that you knew that, you know, I wasn't going to get much worse. But the word that we want to remember is this word that we've just erased, deceive. Remember it. Jesus said this, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And then it says, Many false prophets, in verse 11, shall rise and shall deceive. There's that word again, many. And because iniquity or sin shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And then verse 23, Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise, verse 24, false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. Insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Jesus warned us, he said, in the last days you're going to see people coming who call themselves Jesus or Christ. And they're not only going to do that, they're going to be able to do miracles and things like this. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were the devil and you wanted to fool people, how would you come? Would you come dressed up with a big red PJ suit on and horns and a tail and breathing flames and a pitchfork in your hands if you wanted. Would you do that? I wouldn't. I'm not, I'm not as informed as the devil is. And I wouldn't do that if I wanted to fool the world. Do you know how I would dress up if I wanted to fool the world? I think I'd, dress, I'd find me the best picture of Jesus I could ever see and I'd put that face on. That's how I'd dress up. We'll get back to that later. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the Jesus Movement. I've been with it since its beginnings in California. I watched carefully, lovingly, sometimes critically, trying to find the difference between the chaff and the wheat in it. And there is some exciting things happening. Now, this is one thing I love about God. It never fails to amaze me how he moves. Uh, a lot of people put God in a box, see? They work out exactly what God is like, they put them in a box, and then they work out what Christians are like. Everybody knew in the United States what a Christian was 10 years ago. You could easily tell a Christian. A Christian was a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Republican 
middle class, always wore a shirt and tie. For us guys, they were in the football team, you know. The girls were the cheerleaders at school, and uh, you knew them. Uh, a Christian was a man who hated the communists. He made it a point to be in church once a week, at least, especially at Easter time. And uh, the Christian was especially a man who believed with passion in the flag, apple pie, and his mother. Well, everybody had a Christian all worked out. So the secular filing cabinet of the world had labeled, here lies the Christians, rest in peace. They put them all away. They filed them away. They knew exactly what a Christian looked like. And just when everybody had written God off as a past relic, hopefully, would pass away, suddenly God moved with power in a totally different direction. And he blew a large number of minds all at once. Suddenly revival broke out in what you could call the untouchable of the United States society. They called them the hippies. Now, I could just imagine what happened when the first reports of this came back in. I could see some ladies go, Goodness gracious, that can't be true. The hippies? God can't save hippies. They smell too much. Now, I know a lot of a lot of parents, because kids, you know, started wearing freaky clothes and wild hair looking like explosions in mattress factories and stuff like this, people really wrote off the hippie movement. They said, well, there's no hope for those kids. You can talk to them, but they just don't listen. They won't even take a track from you. They'll eat it or something if you give it to them. And uh, they wrote it off. Sometimes, I believe, and parents take note of this, sometimes I think uh, we can reject people because of what they look like. I have a preacher friend. He's not a very good friend, but he's a friend in uh, California. And this young man was supposed to preach one time in a church. And he was going to preach on communication with young people. And uh, what he wanted to get across the point was this, that sometimes you don't listen to what people have to say because of the way they look. See? So what he did is, he, his hair is shorter than mine, but he put on a big long wig, came right down to his shoulders. Nobody in the church knew what he looked like except the pastor. Nobody knew he was wearing a wig except the pastor. He got up wearing a suit and a tie, but this wig, big long, long hair wig. He didn't say a word. He just stood up, stood up and he started to preach his sermon. And he was saying, listen, some of you parents never listen to kids because you're put off by their long hair or by their freaky clothes, and you can see all the parents in the audience. And you could see some of them whispering, who let this be into our church? You wait till I see the deacon board. I'll really get on the pastor's back. I sat there like this for half an hour. And then when he finished making his point, he said it a lot of times. He ripped off his hair. Rip. Oh! Old ladies lost their false teeth right in the front row. Scaring things happened, see? They, some of them actually thought he tore his hair off. He was so angry, you know. They suddenly realized there was a wig. My goodness, they never seen anything like that, see? You know what he said? How many of you... Heard my sermon. There wasn't any sound at all. Now, sometimes we can be put off by the way people look. I know 
a lot of times when kids come in, I know I have a friend back in California, youth ministry, decided they'd open the church to these kids. And a great number of, of parents really shook up because here came kids smoking, weird clothes, you know, and they came in and uh, these parents would say, I saw that young man smoking right outside the church. And this youth pastor would say, well, they're sinners. You know, they, they don't know anything about God. And they said, but we can't have these kids around our church. What kind of reputation will we get? He said, they're lost kids and they need God. I said, but what about our own children? They'll lead them astray. He said, it's time we taught our kids because these kids mix with kids like this every day. And anyway, the marvelous things happened. One day, the pastor went out. He was worried because a lot of parents said, if this continues, I'm afraid we'll have to leave and move to a more respectable and decent church. Pastor went out and he saw some of these kids breaking, weeping, giving their lives to God. And he stood up one Sunday and he preached a sermon on compassion. Compassion. Jesus loved the unlovely. And most of those adults stayed and they lived to see 400 young people give their lives to Jesus Christ in a very short span of time. And a beautiful thing to happen. Now the amazing thing I love about God is that he just won't do what you tell him to do. You know, we always want to put him in a little box. We work it out, establish traditions, conventions. We've got it all together, see. And then God goes, boom! And then he breaks it all and he goes somewhere else where he's not supposed to be. So, oh, God, don't do that. Stay back here where I'm comfortable. So we have now the Jesus movement upon us. A group of zealous young Christians all across this nation. What has the Jesus movement brought to the country that we can learn from? The first thing, I think, is a new honesty. A new honesty. I think this is time we had something like this, a breath of fresh air to the church. An honesty, a frankness, an openness. And we, we learn to be so phony, you know, we can pretend. I see people come into church sometimes, and uh, they're smiling like this. See, this is what they really feel like. They got this mask on, looks like this. They're looking out behind us, and they're smiling at me. They're looking at this person here. What they don't know is that behind us, there's the same thing. So they look at each other, and they're all smiling at each other. How are you doing? Oh, wonderful, brother. Praise the Lord, you know. And inside, they're all crying. Met so many kids like this. This, this uh, phoniness, this mask. And so many parents fall into the same trap. But the Jesus movement has done something marvelous. It's taught kids to take their masks off. To really be themselves. Many kids in the Jesus movement, if they're sad, they cry. If they're happy, they laugh. And they don't pretend. And that's one of the marvelous things. They will also not put kids down because of the way they look or the way they talk or because of their social standing or something like this. Uh, even because of the smell of a kid. You know, they won't stand back with a deodorant and go, <coughs> Now I can witness to you I've killed all the bugs. 
The lost are not surprisingly supposed to look lost. If they're really lost, then they... I don't... It's not doesn't surprise me if a kid who's uh, never given his life to God does anything. It wouldn't scare me in the least. And so I've had kids come up to me and they say, Hey, listen, man, do you think God can save me? I say, yes, I'm sure he can. So you don't know what I've done. I said, try me. He says, I murdered my mother. I have to say, oh, really? You know, I can't go, oh, oh, I'm sure you can't be saved now. I've got to say, oh, really? You know, because you, you can't look too shocked. I say, why? You know, I have to ask some questions. But see, there is a new honesty, which is a beautiful thing, a freshness and honesty. And I think it's time we had something like that uh, in the church. We've had a lot of uh, phoniness. A lot of times it's just been a social thing, and there has not been that honesty. Another thing is a new boldness. Now, everybody knew at one stage what a church could expect during the year. The pastor had a calendar. Every month he checked out his calendar. He had so many weeks in the month. And he said to himself, well, we haven't had a revival for a whole year. Our last revival cost us $2,000, and we had uh, Joe Superstar from over the road, and he came in and gave us a good revival. Let's see now. I've got a, one, two, I've got a space, a whole week here for revival. That's why we, up here we got the singing group, and down here we got the ladies' tea party, and up here, we, you know, they had this thing. But right here I've got space for revival. So he'd call up Superstar again, and he'd say, uh, hey, Joe, uh, Brother Joe, could you come over and give us a revival? And Joe Superstar would check his calendar. He just happened to have that week free. He'd say, all right, fine, come over. And then uh, Joe Superstar would swing on chandeliers or whichever. He, he may have been an intellectual man. He may have stood there and given profound scholarship, you know, which absolutely floored everybody with his knowledge and his profundities. But eventually, during the course of this week, this revival, quote-unquote, all the people that would slid in back, slid forwards again, all the people that had been unsaved in the church for 50 years, you know, all got saved, at least until the next revival. And then those who had to be reclaimed were reclaimed, and those who had no missionary call were missionary called. And uh, this happened. The end of a week, a whole week had gone past, the revival was over. The pastor looked at his watch. He said, all right, 12 midnight, this is the end of the revival. Go home, everybody. We wait till next year. This never really touched a great deal of the community, except for a few notable exceptions. Christians didn't really say very much. If you went down the road, just two blocks, and said, hey, what's happening at that church? They said, I don't know, what church? They didn't even know it was there. There used to be a day in this nation when revival really meant that. You had some meetings, and brother, people came from miles around to see what happened. And the power of God was so strong in a city, you could walk in and you could feel God all over the place. And some people had such strong conviction in their lives. I'm thinking of Charles G. Finney. He went into a mill, and there were all these girls threading these big needles in this mill, and Finney walked in that great American revivalist in the true sense of the word, and he looked at this lady, and this lady was threading this needle, and she was laughing. <laughs> She's laughing at him, see? She knew he was a preacher. And he just looked at her, compassion and love and sorrow over her selfishness. 
And she looked at the... <laughs> she couldn't look at him anymore, and she just went to thread a needle, see, and he just kept looking. Hands started to tremble. She, she couldn't put it in and body. She went, <laughs> broke down, wept, and then it went like a flame right along the bench. Next door one went, <laughs> boom, 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 people weeping all along. And he didn't say a word. He just stood there watching. And it went like a flame all the way along. Mill owner rushed in, people were on their knees, crying out to God, oh, you know. Whole mill was up in flames. And the man looked around and he said, well, I see it's more important that we have a, a, a revival than we get this mill going because you need to get your soul saved. And so he closed the mill down and they had some meetings right there in the mill. I think of men who came in from a train. They walked through the city and this conviction increased until a point one businessman, knowing nothing, fell down on his knees in a puddle and he said, Oh God, I need you. Got saved just because of the presence of the Spirit of God in the place. We took a small team of young people into a little city 3,000 people in the city, and there were only 18 kids. Those kids made such an impact on that city that a young lady, just sitting there reading uh, her study, started to get really convicted, just, just studying her homework. Can you imagine getting convicted, reading your homework? And she, she didn't know what to do. She started to feel rotten, so she opened the Bible, and the more she read that, the more rotten she felt. She gave her life to Jesus Christ, and today she's serving God. Nobody spoke to her, just the Spirit of God. That's what I mean by revival. Then, with a sudden flood, into this very dead sort of thing, where Christians never seem to make a very great impact on the world around them, the Spirit of God touched the hippie communes. And kids that had been into drugs and all kinds of private health met Jesus. And out of this new bold consciousness came a new sign. I think Billy Graham was the man who started it. Instead of the familiar two-finger peace sign or the Satanist sign, they had a new sign, one way. They flashed that finger, one way, see? Now they knew. They knew what it meant. You see, these kids had tried all kinds of things. They'd tried drugs. They'd tried transcendental meditation. They'd gone through the mantras of Krishna consciousness. They'd tripped out on Paramahansa Yogananda and Sri Ramakrishna and all these other cool Eastern guys. And they'd, you know, they'd uh, transcendentally meditated with Maharishi smelling flowers and done all kinds of things like this. And they were often kids from rich affluent homes that had tried all kinds of things. They had all the money in the world they needed, but they had no spiritual reality. Some of them had gone into weary searching sex. Some of them had gone up to Haight-Ashbury. And they went out, a lot of young people, they listened to the songs that said, uh, you know, why don't you go to to the hate, wear a flower in your hair, and everything's beautiful up there. So they, all these little girls and some guys, your 15-year-old kids, said, oh, I hate my parents, and they dropped out, and they all went up to hate Ashbury. They went up there to see beautiful people throwing kisses and flowers. When they arrived at hate Ashbury, hate Ashbury was hate. Instead of seeing people throwing kisses and flowers, all they found was a cancerous community where people threw knives and bottles. Some of these kids, their dream turned into a nightmare. Prostitution, begging, addiction, and death. And there was nothing, nothing else to turn to for an answer. And then, like a flame, the light of God began to break here and there across 
Southern California, Seattle, and different places, begin to touch young people's lives, and they begin in their search to turn, finally, to give up this empty, meaningless searching, and then the Spirit of God in His search found them. And suddenly, a revival, not a revival yet of the kind we'd like to see, but at least an awakening. Young people begin to open up towards God. I'm holding the largest underground newspaper in the world, and it's a Christian one. And then buttons. Couldn't go anywhere without bumping into a button. Now, the buttons weren't a Christian idea. You understand that. The buttons used to say, uh, make love, not war, you know. They used to say, support our boys in Canada for the draft resistors and stuff like this. Then they changed, and they began to read, I found peace in Jesus Christ. Jesus, bridge over troubled waters. Another student for Jesus Christ. And then the heart-shaped little desk that said simply, Jesus lives here. And the bumper stickers were really something else. You can go now all over California and different places. You see these bumper stickers on the back of the cars, right at your own risk, I'm leaving at the rapture. Join God's forever family, Maranatha, what a way to go, and things like this. And then the funny little one, honk if you love Jesus. I tell some of you, you can, you know, can come up behind, you see all these honk if you love Jesus, so you can bop, bop, bop like this, and you go past, and the dude forgot he had a bumper sticker on his gun. <laughs> like this. Suddenly these kids were everywhere, and the, they were everywhere, and the secular media picked them up with a vengeance. Full-length television specials were made, and uh, television crews shot thousands of feet of film, began to put them together. National Magazine, with worldwide distribution, began to run articles. More and more articles began to pick them up. And now, finally, you can't really go anywhere in this country for any length of time without bumping into a Jesus person. Now, you may not recognize because they look very much like the culture they came from. But often I went through a big... Our shopping mall in Houston, Texas, so beautiful it was carpeted all the way through. And I saw right in the middle of it this bearded, long-haired guy, and he had a Bible about as large as he was, and he was kneeling down with this straight guy right in the middle of this thing, preaching the heaviest sermon I've ever heard in the middle of a shopping mall. Where flowery testimonies had not succeeded, these simple direct witnesses become a powerful thing. And then thirdly, and new music. But I do believe in Christian new music. And parents, remember this. The word rock to kids does not carry the same connotations as it does to you. Most parents, when they see the word rock, think of Elvis uh, Presley. <laughs> you know, with a golf suit on and a guitar going, boom, boom, you know, that's it. But the word rock today, to young people, covers a great gamut of sound. It can cover everything from country and western to classical. So you ought to, when a kid says, hey, I heard a good Christian rock sound yesterday, don't let the top of your mind come off, parents. Say, oh, really? You know, what kind of sound was it? I have a lot of kids come up, they say, what do you think of rock music? And they expect me to say, oh, horrible, I hate it, which tells them I don't, I don't know anything at all about music. So I say, oh, which kind? And they say, well, I don't know. How many kinds are there? I say, about 15. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, and then we get into definitions. But parents, I don't think it's fair to write off all new sounds that are coming 
from young people who have given their lives to God is music that comes from hell. Because every generation has seen a new sound and new music. And uh, I believe there's some very beautiful songs written. I'm going to give you some of the lyrics. I've had some adults say to me, well, listen, these kids, they're not really writing any decent songs. Their theologies are crummy. I believe that. I believe some do have really crummy theologies. But I bet John Wesley and Charles Wesley probably had a few songs that didn't ever make it to your hymn book either. And these kids are trying. I say right on. Encourage you. Listen to some of the lyrics. Some of my friends, California Whitney song. And how about this one for theology? My heart fills with joy when I consider all of the Father's created handiwork of living things in sun, of the firmament on high, the living manner of each day, the breath of life he breathes into each one. I was created by God the Father, was bought by the blood of the Son. Now I live by the Holy Ghost, my God, the three in one. And that's theology, and decent theology. Listen to this pretty one by the love song. Accept him with your whole heart and use your own two hands. With one, reach out to Jesus, and with the other, bring a friend. So simple, so beautiful. Here's Ray Hildebrand's song, If I live, well, praise the Lord. If I die, well, praise the Lord. If I live or die, my only cry will be Jesus and me. Praise the Lord. And here's a song by Larry Norman on the second coming of Jesus. Here, this one doesn't send chills down your spine. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. Oh, I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold. A piece of bread would buy a bag of gold. Oh, I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. That's good preaching. So I don't think it's fair to write off all new sounds as non-Christian. I believe any music that glorifies Jesus, but I have heard people, I've seen a girl who couldn't play the piano, the power of the Holy Spirit came in her life, she had her eyes closed, she walked over to the piano and she sat down and she played the piano for half an hour. And she had never played in her life before. And I have a tape recording of that, and it didn't sound like you thought it sounded. It didn't go... Nearer, my God, to thee. It didn't sound like that. It sounded like waterfalls, like thunder, like rain, like uh, deer running through the forest. It sounded beautiful. It was the sound of the nature around them, and it, it was really fantastic. So I think God has some surprises for the church and music. All right, time is running on now. I want to give you the weaknesses of the Jesus movement. There are some weaknesses of it, and they're real weaknesses. First, uh, oh, there's one other thing. Better add one thing. An emphasis on the Holy Spirit. This is one strength. I better finish the strength. Young people have put a new emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and that's necessary because, you see, these kids are going out meeting young people who are sold out to the power of the devil. There are young people today, you know, who worship Satan. California, we have some kids, they go up into the mountains, they take dogs, they kill them, sp spill their blood, and they have a, uh, a meeting around this. We uh, heard of one young lady, 
She joined the Satanist church and she offered her baby as a burnt sacrifice in the Satanist church. And there are some very frightening things happening down there. Anton Sander LeVay stands up in his first church of Satan, built like a big black coffin, and he prays, Our Father which art in hell, glory be to your name. And these kids are coming confrontation head on with the powers of darkness. Now in this, you can't simply write things off and say, well, you know, actually most of this is all an illusion when you see before your very eyes a kid doing satanic lying wonders. And these kids need more than some nice little intellectual trip. They need power, and they're getting it from the Holy Spirit of God. He's anointing kids and changing them and supercharging them and equipping them to do a task that is just as necessary as it was in the first time when Jesus walked the earth. There were powers of darkness, just like Paul and Silas. There were sorcerers in those days. We have young people today who are sold out to the power of the devil. And God is raising up young people, supercharged by the Holy Spirit, with supernatural miracles in their lives, to counteract and overthrow these powers. An emphasis on the Holy Spirit. You'll know this by reading the papers. Rosemary's Baby was a book that probably introduced this whole idea of, of uh, the son of Satan. In this, this girl uh, has sexual intercourse with the devil in a dream. She thinks it's, it's her husband, but actually it's supposed to be the devil. She has this child which is taken away from her, and she thinks it's dead. And this child is the son of Satan. Finally, she discovers a doorway through this closet. She walks in. She sees this little black bassinet, and inside there's a baby playing with its toy, and the toy is a black crucifix of Jesus still on the cross hanging upside down. And the baby opens up its eyes and looks at her, and it's got yellow eyes, slit like a cat. And she says, what have you done to its eyes? And they say, it has his father's eyes. Capital H. And she thinks... This is her husband, baby, and she says, Guy doesn't have eyes like that, and they say, Guy is not his father. Satan is his father. Satan has arisen from hell to beget a child of mortal woman to avenge the iniquities of the God-worshippers on his never-doubting followers. And then they stand around and they begin to chant, Hail Satan, Hail Satan. The year is one, the first year of our Lord. And out of that, a film was made. Rosemary's Baby, that's still one of the top hundred films of this decade. Rosemary's Baby. The director who directed that was a man by the name of Roman Polanski. His wife was a girl called Sharon Tate. And one day when Sharon Tate was in an apartment with some friends. When she was pregnant, carrying a baby, a group of people from the Manson family came in and killed her, cut a big cross on her stomach. And Charles Manson was the man who said, I am Jesus Christ, I am God, and I am the devil. All in one. See how the publicity comes. First the book, then the movie, then the murder, then Manson's trial. 
And Satan is getting as much publicity as he can out of this to spread his word. Those scary things that are happening to this generation is why young people must know the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, I'm going to just quickly give you the dangers of the New Jesus Movement. First of all, bitterness. Many of these kids have really been hurt, and it's, they need to learn what it is to forgive, to forgive the church, to forgive the system. I've seen too many Jesus people movements where kids still hold bitterness against, their life, uh, against people that have hurt them, people in the system, or they'll just simply write off this. And uh, when we've been working with the kids in the street, we tell them, first thing, if you're going to give your life to God, go back and apologize. Ask forgiveness of all those that have hurt you, and you be willing to forgive those who have hurt you. If you can go back and apologize for the things you've done to hurt them, then you'll find you can have in your heart to forgive them. And it's marvelous. Can you imagine kid going back? He's got to apologize to his parents. He's got to say, I'm sorry for the things that I've done to hurt you. It's a little easier to say in his heart, I forgive you, if he does that. Can you imagine what happens to the parents when their kid comes home and says, Dad, I've got something to say to you. I've just been saved. And the dad says, what is that? And the kid says, I gave my life to Jesus, and he spoke to me about something I've done to hurt you. Over all these years, I've been this, 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 and that. And I know I've wronged you in this, and I want to ask you, will you forgive me? And what does that do to the dad? He doesn't know what to do. He may have to get saved himself, which would be very embarrassing for him. Two. Another problem is this uh, no-think, I could call it. A lot of kids today in the Jesus movement came out of the hippie move, which uh, was against thinking, really. Kids just, they didn't say, hmm, is this logical? They said, hey, what is it like? The kids said, try it. All right, so they swallowed some mushroom or cap of acid. Boom, I said, no, I didn't like that. And said, well, try something else, you know. It was tested, tasted and see, if you like. And uh, a lot of kids have this no-think thing, which is dangerous. I'm thinking of one young lady. She came up to me. She pointed to a piano. She said, what's that? I said, that's a piano. She said, oh, really? She said, it isn't a piano. That's a blue giraffe. <laughs> I looked at the blue giraffe. I said, oh, a blue giraffe. She said, yes. I went over to the blue giraffe, and I played chopsticks on it. That's all I can play. I said, sounds like a piano to me. She said, well, you just think it's a piano, so you can play it. But I happen to think it's a blue giraffe, so I can go and pet it and stroke it and talk to it. This young lady is saying, nothing is real except in your mind. If you think it's real, it's real. Now, how many of you have met anybody like this? All right, I did. Now, what do you say? I said, you said there's nothing real except what's in your mind. She said, right. I said, oh. Excuse me. I said, I'm going to get a pot of coffee. She said, why? I said, I'm going to pour it all over your head. She said, why? I said, you don't have to worry. I don't, you don't have to even believe it's there. I happen to believe it'll burn you. She looked at me. I said, let's go to the top of this church. She said, why? I said, I'm going to push you off. She said, what for? I said, because I happen to believe this is a church, and it's a long way down. It's about 80 feet down into the ground, but you can think it's a swimming pool if you like, and we can go in for a swim. I happen to believe if you hit the concrete, they'll have to paint over the top of you. And then she looked at me, and then I grabbed her nose. 
She said, let go of my nose. I said, I haven't got your nose. You just think I've got your nose. <laughs> Most think is a problem. And then, finally, a scary thing. A thing I call the new Jesus. The new Jesus. And I probably think, I think this is the most scary thing of all. The Bible tells us, and we've always already mentioned it, there is a new Jesus coming. And centuries before, the real Jesus has warned, had warned us already about the times we're going to be living in. And the Lord said, Take heed that no man deceive you. There's that word. And I want you to remember it. This is the real danger of the last days. Not just drugs, not just the rejection of faith, but a new gospel, a new Jesus, a new faith, a new Christianity that God will not recognize. And that's the danger of the last days. I'm going to play for you now on tape a little montage that I call the new Jesus. I'm going to show you tonight some of the new Jesuses that are here in society. This is the greatest danger to the Jesus movement. So many kids say, listen, it doesn't matter about doctrine, about the Bible. The important thing is, do you believe in Jesus? And God asks you this question, which Jesus do you believe in? If I go to a girl in Mexico and I say, do you love Jesus? She says, oh, yes. And I say, when did this start? She said, he proposed to me just two months ago. Which Jesus are we talking about? There is no greater danger than deception. And a lot of kids today are using the word Jesus when they don't know the person of Jesus. They don't know the Bible Jesus. If it's true, you don't need the Bible. You can just experience Jesus. On what basis do you know the Jesus you've experienced is the Bible Jesus and the real Jesus? What if this man appeared on the stage of the world looking exactly like Jesus, wearing a white robe, healing little children, doing great signs, wonders, and miracles. How would you convince your little Sunday school kids if he looked like one of Solomon's head of Christ or Richard Hook's uh, aggressive-looking picture of Jesus? How would you convince your little kids that this wasn't Jesus if he looked just like him? You see, experience is not enough. You must make sure that your experience is the Bible experience with the Bible Jesus. Tonight, I'm going to show you now the dangers. And the Lord Jesus has warned us. A lot of people have learned to misquote the Bible. And this is what the Bible says. You can, uh, you can see this. John 8, 31 and 32. And this is a misquote we're talking about now. A lot of people say this. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But notice, that's a misquote. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you continue in my word, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus is not just a good trip. There is a real Jesus and a false Jesus. Tonight, to close, I'm going to show you about the new Jesus. I'd like to say before singing this controversial song, take 32, 
But this isn't about anybody's God in specifics. I'm trying to send my best friend to God. I want you to look in your Bibles at 1 John 1 8. 1 John 1 8. 1 John 1 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's that word again. Deceive ourselves and the truth which is the Lord Jesus, is not in us. Now you tell me, young people, which Jesus is this one? The Bible has a name for the Spirit in the sky. Ephesians 2.2. He is called the Prince of the power of the air. And his name is Lucifer, Satan, the devil. Album one. Second album. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long years. So many of them so at me. I was around when Jesus Christ had his Lord of doubt and faith. Make damn sure that pilot watched his hand and sealed his face. Please to meet you. Hope you get my name. What's confusing you is just the nature of my game. Water into wine, that's all you need to wear down now. 
years, they believe a new Jesus, another Superman, will be born. And they believe we're now entering this age, another Jesus will be born in this generation who will come and lead the world into peace. The Bible has warned us in advance, he will come, but he will not be the real Jesus. You be prepared if he does. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for warning us in advance of the last days. I pray you'll help young people to be delivered from addiction to the media so that they'll be aware of what is happening in their heads and in their hearts. A new Jesus is coming. We pray that we'll be able to tell the difference between him and between the real one by knowing your book and knowing you. In Jesus' lovely name. The real Jesus' is name, we pray. Amen. All right, as I said, the um, the songs there at the end were kind of hard to hear, but in case you want to try to look them up, uh, let's see if I can remember. There was, um, he played uh, uh, clips from uh, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. He played uh, a song that I believe it was originally a, stone, a song by the Rolling Stones, but it was a, a cover by Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, I'm trying to think what that may have been called. Might have been Sympathy for the Devil. I don't know. He played uh, a little clip of um, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. Played a couple of little tracks, uh, bits of tracks from uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. And finally, the last one was um, a clip of Eva Destruction by Bear Maguire. So that's it for this week. Uh, hope you enjoyed this one. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.